You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hey everybody, this is CJ. Welcome to episode 90 of the Dangerous History Podcast. Going to be ringing in the first Dangerous History episode of 2016 with a listener emails episode. Haven't done one of these in a while, and uh, some of these are emails I've been sitting on for a month or two because it's been so long since I've done a listener emails episode, but... You know, got some good emails a while ago, tucked them away for just this occasion, but then I got sidetracked by, you know, doing a couple of interviews with people and a bunch of other uh, projects. And of course, the Christmas truce episode I did a week or two ago, I guess I put that out on Christmas Eve, I think that was a bit of a hit. So yeah, just had a bunch of other stuff uh, to do before I could get to a listener email episode, but I'm at it now. Those of you whose emails will be featured in here. Don't worry. I didn't forget. I, I tucked them away and now you're going to hear your emails and uh, my thoughts on them. Now, this is the part of the show where I normally would do the Patreon shout outs to the new people who have stepped up to help support this show at patreon.com slash prof CJ on a per-episode donation basis, but unfortunately, uh, since the last episode I made, which was the Christmas Truce episode, I have not had any new Patreon supporters step up. So, tragically, I have no names to read off here. Uh, No one to thank, other than I'll say a thank you to anyone who supported the show in other ways, and of course, uh, ongoing thank yous to those who have been supporting the show via Patreon um, for whatever length of time. Yeah, no one signed up in the past couple of weeks and, in fact, had a couple of people, um, you know, unsubscribe or, you know, stop donating via Patreon. I, I understand, you know, that things can happen and, and you need that money for other things, whatever. But um, hopefully some of y'all listening who haven't already stepped up will consider doing so. Remember, if you sign up to donate any amount per episode... To this show via Patreon, I will thank you by name in the next episode I make after you you've signed up. And um, if you you know pledge to donate at least one dollar per episode, then not only will I thank you by name in the next episode I make, but you'll also have access to bonus content that is at Patreon.com/slash/ProfCJ. And I do put out an extra episode since I've started using Patreon. I think about once every one to one and a half months, I put out 
uh, an extra Dangerous History podcast episode that's available nowhere else. So please consider signing up to support the show via Patreon if you've not already. In addition, as always, there are other ways to support the show. Check out profcj.org slash donate for ways to do that. And I appreciate anyone who helps out this show in any way, including even things as simple as spreading the word, as leaving reviews in podcast venues such as iTunes, and even things like subscribing to the podcast on iTunes or on Stitcher, even things like that, you know, they help the show climb up the charts more, they help make it more visible, and uh, more people try it, more people find it and then try it etc. So any way you can help this show out, of course, including financial, much appreciated. I can use all the help I can get. Now on to today's show. The first email that I'm going to read and then respond to in this episode comes from Jeff. And uh, the heart of Jeff's email is, I had a thought after listening to the Alliance of Throne and Altar, which, by the way, side note, the Alliance of, of uh, Throne and Altar was a few episodes back. I think it was episode two of the Dangerous History Podcast, and I mention that because there's another email that refers to this episode as well, and um, hope you'll check it out if you've not already. I think that was the, the most recent episode I've done in the Silver Bullet, meaning while driving in my 2014 Silver Hyundai Accent hatchback. I'll probably be doing another Silver Bullet podcast episode in the relatively near future as a Christmas break ends for me and I have to officially go back to work actually tomorrow from when I'm recording this. But anyway, Alliance of Throne and Altar episode 82, it didn't get enormous amounts of downloads compared to some of the other episodes around it. But um, those who have listened to it, a lot of people have really liked it. I've received a lot of feedback in various ways on that episode. So I hope you'll check it out if you've not listened to it already. Anyway, Jeff writes, I had a thought after listening to the Alliance of Throne and Altar about monotheism versus polytheism. Do you think the former pushing out the latter for the most part had anything to do with the populace being more accepting of central control by the state? If so, do you think it was by design or coincidence? And, uh, as I, I said in my emailed response back to Jeff, where I basically said, hey, this is a great one for, for a listener email show, I, I did mention in that email, this is a really good, interesting question that I don't think there's any like completely solid answer to, but is very thought-provoking and is something I'd never really thought about. So if you're not familiar with the terms, most of you probably are, but just in case you're not, monotheism is a religious belief in which there is a single God, and polytheism is a religious belief system in which there are multiple gods, and or goddesses, for that matter. So, Jeff is basically asking the fact that historically, in most parts of the world, monotheism has, in the long run, elbowed out polytheism. You know, Christianity taking over Europe, Islam taking over, you know, an enormous chunk of the world, including the Middle East and North Africa, and then east into parts of Southern and even Southeastern Asia. And a lot of these areas prior to monotheism taking over as the dominant uh, belief system, a lot of these areas were polytheistic in some fashion, some something along the lines of what we would generically call paganism, right? And so the long-term trend, particularly over the last 2,000 years or so, in many parts of the world, is monotheism displacing polytheism in many areas. 
Now, obviously, another long-term trend that's uh, been going on pretty much since the Neolithic era has been the gradual increase in the size, scope, scale, control, and spheres of influence of states. And so I, th- I think it was very perceptive of Jeff to, um, to wonder, to speculate, is there a link there? And I think sort of it's possible there might be a big link, but that I think we would need some more evidence than what I'm aware of to demonstrate that there's like this, you know, concrete link. So here are some of my thoughts on this question. And again, I don't think there's a hundred percent right or wrong answer to this question, but I think it's an interesting thing just to think about. So first off, just to be, you know, a hundred percent clear, let me just say, these are some of my thoughts pondering these interesting questions. I don't claim that any of what I'm going to say on this topic is ironclad. And I'm certain that one can find exceptions to every overall tendency or trend or correlation that I'm going to talk about. In fact, I can think of individual exceptions to my general thoughts on this topic. For example, I'm well aware that there are monotheists, including some devout monotheists, who are also anti-state, who are basically, you know, anarchists or whatever other term you want to use. So clearly there's not a 100% ironclad correlation between monotheism and acceptance of, uh, of the state. Okay, so just, you know, preface that. I know some of you who listen to this show are monotheists who are also strongly opposed to the state. But in terms of, of Jeff's uh, questions, I think there's definitely something to it. But I, I just don't think there's a 100% correlation or link between monotheism and statism. And I don't necessarily think that Jeff thinks that either. I'm just, uh, you know, trying to make clear as possible my thoughts on this. So thinking about this possible connection, there have been historically some pretty authoritarian regimes that did have a polytheistic state religion. So just a few examples that readily come to my mind would be things like the ancient Egyptian kingdoms, the pre-Christian Roman Empire, which uh, was was quite authoritarian for quite a long time with paganism, basically. Uh, you also would have something like the, the Mongols, at least their initial belief system. It, it's kind of hazy and complex, but basically my understanding is it's polytheistic, the sort of you know, indigenous Mongol religion, though, of course, as time went on and the Mongols conquered various parts of Eurasia, some of the Mongols did eventually adopt the belief systems of some of the people they, peoples they conquered. So, for example, in a few areas, uh, some of the Mongol rulers converted to Islam and things like that. And whenever you find a, a ruler or a would-be ruler adopting a new religion, you always have to wonder, and of course, there's no way to prove for sure, but you always have to wonder, it, when, a, when a leader or a wannabe leader converts to a religion, is it heartfelt? Is it a genuine conversion, the way we would normally think of that term? Or is it a, a very pragmatic, calculated move like, oh, these people will accept my quote-unquote authority far more if I'm professing the same belief that they are? right? You always have to wonder. Constantine comes to mind, right? Famously, lots of people, and I'm inclined to agree with them, are very skeptical about just how heartfelt Constantine's so-called conversion, and there are some people who argue he didn't even really convert at all anyway, 
But, you know, I'm not even getting into that. That's not my area of expertise, but I'm just pointing out there's this controversy where plenty of people, Christian and otherwise, are very, very doubtful that Constantine really converted in terms of his heartfelt convictions and beliefs. And um, a lot of people believe that he was simply co-opting Christianity as a very useful tool for establishing his control over the Roman Empire. Again, I'm not taking sides in that specific debate, just pointing out that it exists. Um, Much more recent case, you can look into the book Family of Secrets by Russ Baker, which is about the Bush family, which is a very good, very well-researched book. And he digs up some stuff in that book that, to me at least, uh, severely calls into question how much George W. Bush's alleged adoption of evangelical Christianity was really genuine, and how much of it was political calculation. And there were some hints of this, even if I, it's been years since I saw it, but even in the uh, Oliver Stone movie W, there were some scenes, I believe, based on some real uh, things that happened in conversations that call this into question, where more or less it seems like Karl Rove is convincing W to act like he's a heartfelt evangelical to get the votes of millions of evangelicals. So I'm always skeptical. Now, is there the possibility that some some ruler, some leader somewhere might have a genuine heartfelt uh, religious conviction that causes him to convert to a new faith? Sure. I'm not saying that's impossible. I'm saying I just always wonder because I'm very cynical, which I think, uh, especially when you're looking at people who have power or who want power, Being cynical is just being hard-nosed realist. But anyway, uh, getting back to some of the examples is an interesting tangent, I think, anyway. Um, And and the the general link between religious belief and political authority is always a fascinating thing to look at throughout history. Um, Some other historical states that come to mind as being fairly um, authoritarian but also polytheistic, some of the old Hindu kingdoms in Indian history— Uh, the Incan and Aztec empires in the New World, other examples. But I would point out something that all of these powerful states that come to my mind, and maybe there's some exceptions you all know of or can think of, but all of the examples of powerful polytheistic states that readily come to my mind are pre-modern. In fact, most of the polytheistic states that exist were pre-modern, many of them downright ancient when you're talking about the Egyptian kingdoms, some of the kingdoms of India, and so forth. And I don't know, I mean, there's relatively few countries that have a real genuine state religion today, Um, but of those that do, are there any governments today that have an official state religion that is polytheistic? I can't think of one. I can't think of one. But um, if you know otherwise, please you know chime in in the show notes comment section or something like that and let us know. But I think in general, when you see states that have a polytheistic state religion, you, you're in most places you're going really far back. Now there have been plenty of states, obviously, that have been powerful and perhaps even oppressive kingdoms, empires, whatever you want to call them, that have had a monotheistic official religion. And on average, these tend to be of more recent vintages than those polytheistic kingdoms and empires. Now, on the other hand, it's true that in certain instances, 
For example, in certain specific periods of European history, particularly some of the parts of the medieval era, the Catholic Church could act as a check and balance on secular kings. Though I have to point out, because people sometimes take this in a direction I don't think is warranted, that when the Catholic Church functioned in that way from time to time in medieval Europe, its motives were not, in most cases, to protect liberty in the abstract sense or in the individual sense. That's not why the Church sometimes stood up to kings. It's the fact that the Church itself had aspirations to sort of be a state or some sort of transnational state, and it was protecting its powers and privileges and perks and so on in almost every instance, at least that I'm familiar of. So you you kind of get the church sometimes default, like as a, as a side effect standing up for Liberty in essence, when you're looking at the big picture by standing up to the authority of Kings in some places, but it's going way too far to act like then, Oh yeah, that the, the, church and the Pope and the hierarchy was uh, doing this out of some sense of protecting individual liberty. That's not why they're doing it. Now, it can have that unintended side effect. Sure. And if you're someone who kind of, by default, has your rights uh, protected by, by the church in one of these instances, I'm sure you welcome it. But that's a far cry from saying that the church was consciously, intentionally being this Batman of liberty in the medieval era. I don't think there's a lot of evidence to support that. In other words, and I hope I'm not beating a dead horse, but I want to make my my thoughts on this clear. I'm not saying that the, the church never did anything positive or never stood up for uh, freedom or rights or anything like that in, in any sense. I'm saying that the church sometimes enhanced political liberty by checking the power of secular rulers, but that this was incidental. It was basically an unintended side effect that sometimes occurred in cases where the church was battling to protect its own powers and privileges from the encroachment of a secular ruler. Now, it's also true, I know probably many of you have been thinking this, uh, at least for the last few minutes, it's also true, and I'm certainly aware of this, that some of the most centralized and depressive of modern states have been states that, at least nominally, at least theoretically, are mostly irreligious or in some cases even anti-religious. So for example, the Soviet Union, uh, communist China under Mao, those sorts of regimes come to mind, particularly in the 20th century. However, I would argue that in those cases, those regimes are actually extremely religious in nature, but that their faith is centered on the state on its official ideology and on whoever its big brother leader figure is. So, you know, for an extreme example of this, look into what life is really like in North Korea today. I mean, it's basically a nation sized cult with dear leader playing the part of God on earth. And it's not quite as extreme, but it's not too far behind when you go back to the days of Stalin in the Soviet union or the days of Mao and communist China and look at how, the leader and his thoughts and the official ideology are all treated with veneration. Um, in some cases, it seems like they're explicitly copying religious motifs and methods. You know, they're singing songs, praising the leader and all that. And they have very often um, 
ideologies of of a coming sort of kingdom of heaven on earth, if only we keep following dear leaders' uh, teachings and all this sort of thing. It's very, very religious, even though it's not claiming to be supernatural. But, I mean, come on, go go look up some of the official uh, biographies of the leaders of North Korea. It is, in some cases, almost plagiarizing the Bible and just pulling out Jesus and putting in, you know, Kim Jong whatever. So I think you can make the argument that those sorts of regimes, though they would say that they're not explicitly religious in nature in a lot of cases, they're really heavily basing their methods and techniques on religion. And that clearly it is a unitary religion. It is a monotheistic religion, so to speak, right? The state and its uh, head guy are unitary in their sovereignty and power and authority. There's not significant checks or balances or alternatives to them. Now, here's where I'm, I guess, going to try to connect these dots. And I, again, I admit it won't be, it can't be precise, really, but I think there's a connection. It's maybe not totally direct, but at least it's a connection by analogy that conditioning one's mind to work in a certain way might also condition it to work in an analogous situation um, by sort of changing your basic paradigm through which you look at the world, whether that paradigm through which you look at the world and think about it, whether it's being um, reformed consciously or unconsciously, I think beliefs in one area have an influence on beliefs in another. So here's a little more of what I mean by that. If you're in a polytheistic universe, a polytheistic worldview, there are multiple powerful divine entities that one can appeal to and interact with. So if, for example, one thinks that one particular god uh, isn't friendly to you for some reason, or if for some reason you don't like a particular god, you don't have to interact with and, and appeal to and pray to and sacrifice to that one. You can appeal to others in your pantheon instead. So in a way, when it comes to the divine realm, sovereignty in polytheism is split up. It's fragmented, however you want to put it. Now, perhaps in your pantheon, not all gods are equal in their power, influence, or whatever, right? There might be some gods in your belief system who are in some ways more powerful than others, but no single god has absolute dominating uh, power and hegemony over all the others. It's almost a bit, again, this is an analogy, but it's almost a bit sort of like checks and balances at the federal level and then sort of federation with state authority and local authority in a way, right? So if you think that Zeus isn't helping you out or is, is not friendly uh, disposed to you for some reason, you can appeal to, I don't know, Athena, right? Now, in addition to that concept of, of sovereignty being split up into multiple levels and multiple poles, another thing in the polytheistic worldview that might limit one's willingness in some cases to accept complete state dominance is that I think in a lot of polytheistic systems, maybe not everyone, but in many of them, on average, there's a little bit more of a general inclination towards tolerance and acceptance of other religious beliefs and practices, especially if those other religious beliefs and practices are polytheistic as well. So for example, very often in ancient times, polytheistic peoples would encounter others who had differing gods, and they might end up adopting some 
or even all of the other people's gods into their pantheon. Something that, of course, would be totally inconceivable in a monotheistic worldview, even in a relatively tolerant monotheistic religion. Again, I'm talking about general tendencies and so on. I'm not talking about absolute constant uh, connections here. Now, by contrast with what I just described with a polytheistic worldview, in a monotheistic worldview, power in the supernatural realm is unitary. There might be, in some cases, other entities that you can appeal to for some help, but there's not you know, multiple actual deities. So for example, in Catholicism, there are saints that one can pray to and appeal to, to sort of put in a good word with the boss, so to speak, but they're not gods. They have nowhere near the power and influence of the divine. There really aren't checks and balances to the one God in a monotheistic paradigm, the way, the way there are in a polytheistic paradigm. And in terms of the attitudes of devout monotheists uh, towards the gods of others, it's generally much more of a zero-sum situation. Those others who believe in another god or another, in another group of gods, they must be totally wrong, and we must be totally right. There's no ability to, oh, we can keep on praying to uh, Yahweh, but also pray to Jupiter sometimes, you know. Now, I understand there are monotheistic religions that are highly tolerant, but the natural tendency is not that way. The natural tendency is exclusivity and uh, unitariness, if that's even a word. Our God is the only one. Anyone who believes in alternatives is completely wrong. We're completely right. Notice the analogy of this to the concept of the total sovereignty of the modern state. So if, as Thomas Hobbes put it in Leviathan, one of the defining characteristics of a modern sovereign state is its indivisibility, right? One nation under God, indivisible, right? If that's true, and I think it is an accurate description of what the modern state at least aspires to, then I think it's pretty clear that there is a potential analogy of paradigms between monotheism on the one hand and the modern concept of the sovereignty of the state on the other. So I think Jeff definitely seems to be onto something when he asks if there's a potential correlation between increasing monotheism and increasing acceptance of the state. Again, acknowledging there are exceptions, acknowledging that there are monotheists who resist states and some monotheists who are even anarchists, right? But the general tendency. Now, if this is true or true in most instances, that there's a link between monotheism and statism on some level, then we have to go to uh, Jeff's last question, which was, do I think it was by design or coincidence that sort of monotheism increased elbow out polytheism and there seems to be some relationship, at least potentially, in terms of people's general attitude and paradigm to the increasing acceptance of the state? And yeah, I don't think this is the only factor that causes people to accept the state more over time, not by a long shot, but it might potentially be one, right? Do I think it's by design or coincidence? <sighs> this is hard to say, honestly. Um... I think absent, absent hard evidence, you'd have to say, you can't say for sure it's by design. What seems like a reasonable hypothesis to me is that it's sort of both. That people um, in some areas over time moved more towards monotheism for a variety of complicated reasons, uh, including psychology, including 
you know, a bunch of other, other potential factors. And you can see this trend even before monotheism really took over much of the world. You can find polytheistic peoples in some areas, um, moving more towards like an intermediate level. So picking maybe one God out of their pantheon and saying, yeah, we're not denying the others exist entirely, but this one God over here is the only one that we're going to pray to give allegiance to and uh, all that sort of stuff. So I think some of the increase in monotheism historically is for, for lack of a better term, kind of natural tendencies. But I think as monotheism starts to spread, I think it's completely plausible, maybe even likely that a lot of secular rulers sort of opportunistically, maybe on like some gut level, they understood this connection and then adopt these monotheistic religions and make them the official religion and uh, believe, and with some justification, that it will help bolster their rules. So again, I throw out the example of the Emperor Constantine. If it's correct that he wasn't really heartfelt in his uh, profession of Christianity, if it is correct that he was basically just doing it for political reasons, then I think he provides a great example of this sort of thing, of Christianity is spreading without the help of the state in Rome. In fact, in many cases, it's spreading in the face of the state trying to suppress it in the early days. But nonetheless, it grows. It becomes a significant factor in many areas of the empire. And then eventually you have an emperor who says, aha, this might help me. And so he sort of adopts it, makes it into um, you know a state-sanctioned thing. Now, whether Constantine sat down and philosophically reasoned through this analogy like I did before uh, between, you know, unitary views on the divine and then unitary views on sovereignty. Um, I'm skeptical he ever really did that, but he might have instinctively, and this potentially is true of other rulers who've done things like that. He might've on, on some gut level instinct realized this, this connection. So, yeah, I mean, I understand a lot of this stuff again, is fuzzy, um, hard to prove it, and I'm not the world's number one expert on things like early church history by any stretch. But long story short, Jeff, I don't think we can 100% say one way or the other on your question. I think it's a great question, and uh, I lean in the directions that I indicated here. So thanks for the email. Okay, next one comes from Derek, and it also um, has to do with the Throne and Altar episode. Derek writes, I appreciate your extension of Throne and Altar to intellectuals. My own early thinking about this was to extend it to psychology as a means of control. This was especially true in its early days, where what wasn't illegal or immoral was also mental illness. Is psychology still serving the changing state and church in new, in new norms of conformity? Thanks for the email, Derek. I think it's another good one. Short version of my answer to this question is yes, though it's not an absolute or unqualified yes. Now, here, here's a bit more elaboration. I absolutely think that psychology, psychiatry-related sorts of things, that they have been and will continue to be a tool of the powerful to control people that they don't like. In some cases, it can be people they don't like just because they're sort of weird and don't fit in. And in some cases, it can be people they don't like, uh, more dangerous people because th- th- they don't like or that they target because they are dissenters against the powers that be in their particular, you know, society, state, whatever. So in the old theocratic days, this was done 
by labeling people as witches or warlocks or claiming they were demonically possessed or labeling them as heretics and those sorts of things. Obviously, in most parts of the world, that's harder to do and actually get, you know, most people to accept that. In the modern era, of course, people are much more inclined to accept something like a medical diagnosis than they are to accept, oh, you know, your your brother needs to be locked up because he's a warlock, right? So, yes, I think historically, quote-unquote, mental illness has, in some in some cases, taken the place of, you know, heretic and that sort of thing, and that it's used to serve the interests of the powerful. Now, are there some people who have something or other wrong with their brain or with their mind and uh, who might potentially be a danger and, and maybe, you know, something ought to be done about someone like that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, a person who's going to, you know, go bat crap crazy and become an ax murderer or whatever. Yeah. We, we should maybe figure out a way to handle that. I'm still not, not saying the state is, is a good solution to that problem, but yeah, that can happen. But what about people who just don't fit in, right? At what level does not fitting in or being a nonconformist or being a weirdo, at what point does that become an offense for which you should be, you know, forcibly separated from your fellow man and all that stuff, potentially even incarcerated, institutionalized, whatever? That's a very tough question. And I'm always, as long as nobody is harming or threatening to harm someone else, I always err on the side of leave people alone. You know, so if there's a guy down the street from me who likes to I don't know, talk to himself sometimes while he's walk, while he's walking around and have bizarre conversations. I may not want to be the guy's friend or hang out with him. I may not want to like give him a job if I have a business, but you know, if he's not hurting anybody and doesn't seem like he's going to be, leave him the hell alone. Now, I am one of those people, I don't agree with Thaddeus Russell on everything. I do think that objective reality exists, but like I said in in my conversation with him, I think such a thing as reality does exist, but I do believe that humans can never accurately or completely accurately uh, perceive it in like an objective, totally 100% accurate fashion for sure. And I definitely do agree with that and with people like uh, Foucault, who I know was a big influence on him, that certainly the powerful manipulate people's perception of reality in order to maintain and increase their own power. I don't think there's any reasonable uh, way to question that that assertion. And, and I think this is, this is a, a specific point that um, I'd be in agreement with, with that and with Michel Foucault, which is things like psychological diagnoses tend to just rep- represent the, the norms and the preferences of the powerful in a society. So, for example, in the old days, not that long ago, actually, in earlier editions of the DSM, which, if you don't know, is the Diagnose... Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is like sort of the Bible of psychology and psychiatry in the United States, in older editions of the DSM, homosexuality was labeled as a mental illness. And most of the psychologists of that time period, I am sure, completely believed and accepted this as true. Now, in current editions, it's no longer listed as a medical diagnosis in the DSM homosexuality no longer means you're mentally ill, according to the DSM. And um, most psychologists today, I'm sure, would agree with that that change. I also, by the way, don't think homosexuality is a mental illness. Um, but I think it's an interesting case because it shows you how, for many years, this was like the official doctrine of the mental health profession in the United States for the most part. 
And then as the attitudes towards homosexuality changed on the part of more and more uh, powerful and influential people, they changed the DSM to reflect that. It happens to be a change that, you know, I'm in agreement with, but I'm saying that this change does illustrate how changing norms and preferences in the powerful then are reflected in the DSM. Now, I'm not one of these people who thinks that all psychology and psychiatry and so on is uh, useless at best and evil at worst. I do think some of it is helpful to some people. I do think there are some cases, especially where things like counseling and talk therapy can and have helped people, and that there might even be some cases where some people might benefit from some psychiatric medications. And I'm not enough of an expert and don't claim to be. It's not my field to say that I'm, you know, the the arbiter who can decide who might and might not benefit from things like psychiatric medications. But I do think, you know, my opinion is that people in America today are very much overdiagnosed and overprescribed in regard to mental health, no doubt. And a lot of people are given labels that I don't think they should have. I think I remember hearing someplace that medications for depression are now the number one most prescribed medications in the United States. You know, beating out medications for things like physical ailments, blood pressure, all that stuff. That's incredible if that's true. And it shows you that things are kind of going in a, in a troubling direction. And like with anything else, when you're looking at mental health, when the state gets involved and is using force in the equation, obviously it gets exponentially more ominous, more dangerous. Now, I think when someone's voluntarily seeking counseling or some sort of help or something like that, it's generally uh, more likely to be beneficial, what, what comes out of it, especially if the state never gets directly involved in the equation. You know, if I'm having some mental troubles and I go to some sort of uh, counselor and have some sessions and we talk things out and I figure out ways to deal with my problems and I feel better at the end of it and that sort of thing. Like, I don't think there's anything bad uh, going on there. But once the state starts to get involved, there's a lot more potential for things to go in a dangerous way. Now, if you want an extreme example of psychology and psychiatry being used in a very overt, to us anyway, obvious, almost ham-fisted way, to control dissidents and nonconformists who are dangerous to the status quo, all you have to do is check into the history of psychology in the old Soviet Union, where in addition to being used against people who kind of, you know, hear voices in their heads and and that sort of thing, uh, psychology and psychiatry were frequently used against political dissidents, people who didn't buy the official ideology. I remember reading somewhere a long time ago that in the USSR's equivalent of the DSM, back in the day, there was an official medical diagnosis that was something along the lines of denying the greatness and achievements of the Soviet system. So basically, if you just express skepticism about the Soviet state, you're mentally ill, right? You potentially could be institutionalized and imagine the horrific conditions you would likely have faced in a Soviet mental asylum, right? I mean, considering how bad it often was in just, you know, general hospitals for people with with physical ailments, imagine how horrible your treatment would have been in a Soviet mental institution. You might have actually preferred to just get sent to the gulag and just deal with the cold and all that. 
So you could potentially be institutionalized for this sort of thing if you weren't just shot or shipped off to the gulag. So it gave the state more tools in its toolbox, and it gave the state uh, more potential to at least have the veneer of legitimacy for what it's doing against people it doesn't like. And um, if I remember correctly, and it's been a while since I read up on this topic, but if I remember correctly, I think it was under uh, Khrushchev and Brezhnev when the Soviet Union compared to it, how it was under Stalin, at least, was a little bit, you know, lightening up. It wasn't quite as oppressive, and I, st- I still wouldn't want to live there. But, you know, if you compare life in the Soviet Union under under Khrushchev and Brezhnev to what it was like under Stalin, it there's no question, right, which which uh, side is is a little bit more tolerable, at least. But that under Khrushchev and Brezhnev, when there was so-called de-Stalinization, when the uh, worst excesses of the Stalin regime were being, um, you know, curtailed at least somewhat, that there was a simultaneous increase in things like people being institutionalized for mental illness in the Soviet Union. So in other words, they just switched what tool they were using. They say, okay, we're going to back off a little bit on firing squads and gulags. We're not going to get rid of those things, but we're going to, you know, tone it down a little bit. Um, But then we're still going to go after conformists and dissidents, nonconformists and dissidents, and so on, uh, we're just going to use this way that appears more legitimate uh, to people both in our country and the global audience that, oh, no, 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 we're not uh, locking this guy up because we're punishing him for some thought crime. Uh, What we're doing is we're institutionalizing him both for his own good and safety and for that of society um, in, in a mental asylum to make sure he gets the treatment that he needs. Which, you know, sounds much more reasonable than, yeah, he criticized Big Brother, so uh, we're going to take him into a basement and shoot him. So mental health and having control and influence of it gives the state a much, a very powerful and oftentimes more, more, I guess, acceptable and at least uh, superficially legitimate appearing tool in its toolbox to use against those that it doesn't like. So in general... And I think this is true of modern America, even people are less likely to question a medical diagnosis as being a reason for taking away someone's rights than they are other potential excuses. So in general, I think the more the state gets entangled with things like psychology and psychiatry, the more they've got this powerful tool and oftentimes with pretty much no accountability, even less so than in the criminal justice system. And that's saying something. Um, So how far is the U.S. really from having some American equivalents of the Soviet diagnoses where being just a dissident or a nonconformist can get you diagnosed with profound mental illness, maybe even get you institutionalized? How far are we from that? How far are we, for example, from people who simply hold outside the mainstream uh, political and philosophical views on things being placed on no-fly lists or on a no-gun list or whatever, right? That, that's a good question. I think there's some trends in that direction for sure. And as the state gets ever more involved in medicine generally, if we continue down this road of the state just, you know, like an anaconda, slowly increasing its grip on uh, all aspects of medicine— how many more opportunities will that provide for medicine in general and psychological medicine in particular to be used as a weapon against those who don't fit in? The more the state is involved with uh, subsidizing or perhaps paying for entirely in the future and, uh, and regulating and licensing medicine, the more it does that, the more in general it's going to have 
a say over your personal behavior, right? If, if the United States ever gets to the point of having a single payer system, that gives the feds like an ironclad green light excuse to suddenly micromanaged even to a greater degree than they already do things like what you eat, what you don't eat, how much you do or don't exercise and in what fashion, what substances you do or don't put into your own body. I mean, if you think they encroach upon these things now, imagine how much they can and will if they completely control all aspects of medicine. And by the way, think about this. If you're listening, you're most likely a, a fan of this show. Um, and you probably listen to other shows that are more or less in the in the same ideological neighborhood, at least. And so I know a lot of you, myself included, would likely be classified as mentally ill under an American an American equivalent of the old Soviet uh, diagnoses. And if that ever happens on like a large scale, I know it happens around the edges already. But if that ever happens on a large scale to the degree it did in the Soviet system, whatever theoretical tiny shreds and remnants of the Bill of Rights are still left, which I'm the first to admit are not much these days anyway, but whatever's still left of some of those protections like due process, trial by jury, etc., goes out the window completely. You can just have your rights taken away entirely on their say-so. So, yeah, I think there's a long history, and it's certainly not done, of the powers that be getting involved with and, quote-unquote, mental health for their own purposes. By the way, one current diagnosis that is in the DSM is oppositional defiant disorder and several other things that are, that are kind of similar to it. And so, um, if you ever go look that up, like, how many of you might be oppositional defiant disorder, potentially. How many of you might have children that if it was purely up to the state would be labeled with something like that? By the way, if you want a lot more on um, psychiatry and mental illness from an anti-state perspective, check out the works of the late psychiatrist Thomas Zaz. Last name is spelled S-Z-A-S-Z. S-Z-A-S-E. Thomas Zaz. I think he was from Hungary or something. That's why he has a name that, uh, you know, to Americanize is spelled funny. But he was the man on the connection between mental health and, you know, the mental health industry and the state and very much a critic of it and very much um, kind of an historian of it. So check out his works. I've only dabbled in his works, um, but, you know, what I, what I have read of him uh, is quite fascinating and quite thought-provoking. All right, our next email comes to us from Ken, and Ken writes, The hemi-demi-semi-faux history of Irish slavery is again making the rounds of the internet. Two questions. How much truth is there to the idea that the Irish were slaves, even though they were never considered chattel? And how do you recommend people respond to semi-faux history that contains some facts intertwined with a heaping helping of horseshit? And then he... uh included an, an article that he says popped up on his Facebook feed. So um, my response, and I'm going to kind of take it in, in two parts, one to the specific topic of this article and the other to the concept in general of dealing with questionable history um, in, in the way that Ken asked the question. So it's a fairly long article, and I won't read it all verbatim here for time, but I did find it posted and reposted a few places online when I looked for it. So I will link to it in the show notes for this episode, and anyone can read it if they want to. And I'm going to link to it on the page where I'm pretty sure it originated. 
Now, on this particular article and this topic, uh, I would say, Ken, I understand why someone who's not familiar with this corner of history would be initially skeptical of it, especially considering that the article, kind of its tone is a little bit polemical, and considering it's an internet article that's being bandied about on social media, obviously, you're absolutely right, Ken, to be uh, skeptical, to take it with a grain of salt. Although this specific example, I think, is one that has a lot to it, and is, is at least mostly true. So my take on this article and what it says uh, about Irish slavery in British colonies is, it's possible that there might be a few factual errors in detail in a few places. Um, I'm not 100% sure. I wasn't able to verify every specific statement where it says something about, you know, numbers or mentions some specific incident or specific law or practice. So I'm not saying I vouch definitely for everything in it because I'm, I'm just not able to, you know, I only have so much time. I'm not able to track down every little thing. It would be nice if this article had uh, more sources or footnotes or something more, more on that later. But based on what I know from my own studies and also based on things that I've looked up since I got this question from Ken, my uh, conclusion is that when it comes to the overall big picture of what they're saying, this piece is basically correct. And I would say read a book like White Cargo for a lot of this information. White Cargo is a book about you know unfree indentured servants and transported convicts and so on uh, sent to the British colonies. And it's a from from what I can tell, it's a solid book. It's published by NYU Press. You know, it's not some self-published book made by weirdos or anything. And uh, most of the research that's collected in it actually is things that I was familiar with in bits and pieces from graduate school. In graduate school, I took a class on the uh, colonial period of British North America, and we brought in the Caribbean a little bit too. And uh, we we got into a lot of this stuff about indentured servitude and these other sort of involuntary, unfree or semi-unfree laborers, and the weird relationship between those sorts of people and then slaves, you know, African slaves, as we normally think of. And I would point out that it wasn't only the Irish, though they were a huge contingent of it, but in fact, uh, many other quote-unquote undesirables from various parts of the British Isles, meaning the island of Great Britain and Ireland, which would include you know, the, I guess, countries that we think of as England and Scotland and Wales and so on, as well as Ireland, that undesirables, people we might think of as sort of drifters, vagabonds, petty criminals, that sort of thing. And in the case of Ireland, also a significant numbers of prisoners of war and, and uh, dissenters were transported to the New World and used basically in practice as slaves. Uh, they could be bought and sold and traded. They could be punished uh, horrifically for minor offenses. The women, in many cases, faced potential sexual abuse at the hands of their masters. We have to imagine, even though it's not covered as much in the history, that probably, at least in some cases, the men were you know, sexual victims as well, especially in a colony like a, a lot of the... Um, Southern and Caribbean colonies in the early days of British colonization were heavily gender uh, biased in favor of men because they were just bringing over huge numbers of laborers to work the fields. And so, you know, just look at what happens routinely in prisons, right? Where not a lot of women, maybe men who normally wouldn't swing, you know, for other men uh, change their mind, right? 
You know, I don't have to connect the dots too much. So yeah, the conditions were terrible. It's definitely true that a much larger percentage of the white colonists in the British colonies in the 17th and 18th centuries were unfree in some way uh, than most people realize or are told in, in typical school. And part of it, I think, is because of this general tendency to want to deal with American exceptionalism and the glories of American liberty that, oh, from the get-go, these were very free societies and they've just gotten freer and freer as time's gone on. Well, if that's your overall narrative of American history, then there's not a good place. I mean, you can't ignore black slavery because that's just too big and too well-known and too obvious. You have to work that in there somewhere. Uh, But when it comes to these unfree white laborers, it's harder to um, to fit them into the narrative, and it's easier to ignore them. So I, I kind of understand why people are not as as knowledgeable about this as they are about, you know, the African slavery. And by the way, it's true that in many British colonies in the New World, especially in the early days in the 17th century, white people who would be considered servants, which there were some different categories of that, but none of them are really a free person. These sorts of white people were actually more numerous than black slaves as the grunts of the labor force, especially in the early days of a lot of these colonies. For example, early Virginia, right? When people think of Virginia history, they often think of sort of antebellum and Civil War era Virginia, and they think of massive numbers of black slaves. But if you go all the way back to like the early to mid uh, 17th century, Virginia actually had a lot more white servant laborers out in the fields growing the tobacco uh, than black slaves. It wasn't until the um, late 17th century and early 18th century that this trend started to change in a lot of places where you started to have, they, they never disappeared entirely during the time period, but you started to have a little bit fewer and fewer uh, white servants being brought in every year and a bit more black slaves being brought in every year. And it seems like two things seem to have come together roughly around the same time in order to bring about this change. One of them was Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia in the 1670s. And um, I don't have time here to get into that in huge detail. It's very interesting. It's an uprising against the Virginia colonial establishment and, and the colonial government as it existed at the time. And it's led by people like Nathaniel Bacon, who were fairly wealthy and wanted to be successful planters, but because they were newcomers to the colony, they, they sort of weren't in the club. And then it's also joined and supported by a bunch of poor white folks who are indentured servants or former indentured servants who want to get land and can't. And Bacon's Rebellion, and you can read Edmund Morgan's book, American Slavery, American Freedom, as well as others uh, for coverage of this. Bacon's Rebellion scared the hell out of the Virginia elite And it caused many of them to just begin gradually switching from white indentured servitude labor to black slave labor. And of course, it had an effect on many other colonies as well. Virginia was the largest British North American colony. So for it to have this uh, big, scary rebellion in the 1670s, other colonies were watching and paying attention and perhaps adjusting their practices accordingly as well. And then the other thing that um, changed in the latter part of the 17th century that caused the British to um, increase their percentage of their labor forces in the colonies that were black slaves is that the British took over control of most of the Atlantic slave trade 
in the naval and imperial wars they had with the Dutch in like roughly the last third of the 17th century. By the way, these are the same wars in which they seized the American colony known till that time as New Netherland and and, um, and renamed it New York. In particular, to my knowledge, the, the three biggest colonies, and they all received some degree of unfree labor, uh, white labor, um, but to my knowledge, the big three in terms of the bulk of that would be Maryland, the Caribbean island of Barbados, which initially grew tobacco, but then switched to uh, sugar once they realized it was more profitable, and also um, the colony of Virginia. In the early days of, of those three colonies in particular, white servants of one type or another provided the bulk of the grunt labor. And uh, conditions in these colonies in the early days were absolutely horrific. People were dropping like flies from disease. I mean, you just drink the water in these places and it could kill you. And also in some areas from Indian attacks and, uh, you know, lack of food. I mean, the, the early days of Jamestown were absolutely horrific. And it actually took a few generations for things to get dramatically better as far as life expectancy goes. So um, for a definitive history of early Virginia, again, read the book American Slavery, American Freedom by the historian Edmund Morgan. I'll probably get more into this story of white servitude in the colonies in the future when I do my series on American slavery that is going to be a little while before I do it because there's a number of books that I feel I really have to uh, read before I can I can really say that I'm ready to do this series. I've done some work dealing with the history of slavery. Like I said, I had, I had that graduate school class on colonial history. And of course, the topic obviously is important to that. And we did cover some of the history and historiography of that. But I never had the chance while I was in graduate school to take an entire semester long course just on the history of slavery. So I know enough to know some and at least to know what some of the definitive works to consult are, but I haven't necessarily read all of those definitive works yet, so I'm working on that right now. But anyway, in that series, I'm I'm going to, I think, have to get into in a bit more detail than here, this history of white servitude in the colonies. It's not obviously going to be the centerpiece of the series, nor should it be, but I'll maybe do a sidetrack on it, maybe for one episode, because it's clearly connected to African slavery in a lot of interesting ways, some obvious, some not so obvious. Um, one of the things I can think of that's very interesting is how in these early days when there were a lot of white servants laboring in the fields and there were, you know, some African slaves as well, but not nearly the numbers there would be in the future, the white and black laborers often worked and socialized side by side and seemed to have had um, relatively little racial antipathy towards each other. In fact, they seem to, from what we can tell, have had a sense of that they were both on the same side against the rich master who was exploiting both of them. And so in some early cases, you find uh, white servants and black slaves teaming up in various forms of rebellion and resistance and uh, teaming up to escape together to, you know, escape to the wilderness to get freedom. And so anyone who thinks there's a natural racial antipathy of, of white versus black, um, I'm, I'm not so sure that's always the case. I think that those sorts of attitudes are deliberately encouraged by certain factions of the elite that benefit from a sort of divide and conquer mentality. And it, and it seems like um, from, again, from the historical record, and this is pretty solid, that in the very early days 
of uh, Europeans using African slaves, they didn't even have the masters didn't even have that much racial antipathy towards the slaves. It was simply a pragmatic, you know, psychotic, admittedly, but a very pragmatic, ruthless sort of a decision of, well, we want to make a crap load of money from sugar or tobacco or whatever. This is the most effective way to do it is to have these black slaves. And what seems to have happened is that over time, that master class invented a racist ideology of white superiority and black inferiority in order to reinforce the position and to, I guess, legitimize it in the eyes of people who might otherwise question the system. And part of this, on the part of the white master class elite in these um, colonies that depended heavily on slave labor and on unfree labor generally, including white servants, part of it was, um, especially after Bacon's Rebellion, to start to encourage poor whites to see blacks as this inferior separate race. And by doing this, what you do, if you're the rich white guy in a place like Virginia or Barbados, you turn the poor whites against the poor blacks with whom they had previously found common cause, and it's divide and conquer. Now, the poor whites, instead of helping the blacks uh, to try to escape or whatever, maybe even stage an uprising, now the poor whites are on the side of the rich whites. Okay, now they're going to help suppress slave rebellions rather than participate in them as they had been previously. And you can read something again like American Slavery, American Freedom, and many other, many other books that have documented this extensively. White Cargo even talks about it a bit as well. Um, by the way, side note, on the topic of Barbados and, and large numbers of Irish being sent there in the 17th century, the great Irish folk punk band Flogging Molly uh, that I'm a big fan of ever since I saw them, I don't even know, like 15 years ago or something at Warp Tour. They've got a song called Tobacco Island that's about the enslaved Irish being sent to Barbados by Oliver Cromwell in the 1640s. And I'll link to this song in the show notes. Ireland had a lot of nasty wars and rebellions in the 17th century as the indigenous Celtic Catholic Irish fought against the English and Scottish Protestants who had been taking their land and trying to take away their rights to practice their own culture and religion and all that stuff. And there's this connection between the colonization of Ireland and the colonization of the New World that's really been very effectively researched and fleshed out in the history, um, particularly in the last few decades. So, for example, many of the same individuals involved with taking the land from the Celtic Irish and colonizing Ireland were also involved in Britain's American colonies, taking the land from the Indians and colonizing those places. They used the same, te- the same terminology in both cases. It was pretty much interchangeable. They described the Irish in the same racist terms as they also described the Indians. Um, they even called the farms that were set up in Ireland by these uh, Protestant colonizers, they described the farms as plantations. They used that word. So for sure, tens, probably if you added it all up, hundreds of thousands, the exact number I don't think we really do know. So maybe that's one place the article, you know, throws out these numbers. Maybe that's that's fudging it a bit. Um, but probably adding it all up, hundreds of thousands of Irish were forcibly transported from their homeland, mostly in the 17th century, the 1600s. And, and if you're fuzzy on your history, you might be thinking, oh, it's the potato famine. No, it's not. That The potato famine takes place uh, in like the 1840s, so much later. More people leave because of the potato famine, but it's a different situation. They're leaving because of 
economic conditions and lack of food. Now, that's still not 100% voluntary, but that's different than being like grabbed and captured and uh, forcibly transported to some colony to work for some guy. Now, at the same time, and this is also covered in the book White Cargo, poor English and Scottish people also could be forcibly transported to the New World for a variety of reasons. In some cases, for very petty crimes, you could be sentenced to, you know, five years or whatever of hard labor in a colony. And some of those crimes might include things that we wouldn't really consider crimes today, like basically being homeless. This is the time period at which the enclosure movement is kicking a lot of people off of the lands that they had lived on and worked on for hundreds of years in England. Very hard time to be a poor person in England. Part of the reason why they colonized so much during this time period is you had a lot of people, number one, who were willing to endure the terrible conditions in the colonies to have a chance in life. And number two, a lot of people who were sent there, whether they wanted it or not, because they were deemed to be vagrants or whatever. But in terms of numbers, I think the Irish, there were more who were forcibly sent in this way than of the English. Now, there were also indentured servants who took on this this role um, voluntarily. Indentured servant, basically, think of it as being pretty similar to a temporary slave. You can't afford a, a boat ride or anything like that across the Atlantic, but you want to try to better yourself in the colonies. There's no opportunities back home. You'd make a deal with a wealthy individual or with a company that would say, okay, they'll provide you a boat ride across the ocean, and um, then you have to work for them for a certain specified term of years, and then at the end of that term, assuming you survive, you will be set free, and usually you'll get something. You'll get a little piece of land of your own or something along those lines. Now, there were indentured servants who took on that position voluntarily, but Many of them um, found out once they were over in the colonies that they were treated in practice as little, if any, better than slaves. Very often they were abused much more than they'd led to believe when they made the agreement. They found out they had fewer rights and recourse for grievances than they thought. It's, It's a bad deal. Most indentured servants signed up for a term of five or seven years, I think, and especially in the early days of colonies like Virginia and Barbados, the life expectancy for a manual labor in these places was a lot less than five years. And oftentimes, masters could abuse their servants even in ways that were supposed to be illegal, and then, you know, nothing would happen to them. And they could also trump up reasons to extend their indenture, to extend the period a person is in service. So let's say you've got a guy who's got a five-year term, and he's not gotten bit by the wrong mosquito and died of malaria. He's getting close to the end of his uh, his tenure, and you don't want to lose a laborer, and, and you don't want to have to give him any kind of piece of land or something. Well, what you can do is wait for him to do some minor disobedient thing and say, aha, I gotcha, and uh, the punishment is another year on your indenture. So indentured servants, whether they were the so-called free willers who voluntarily signed the contract, or whether they were people who were just sort of rounded up and sent, or they were convicts, or they were POWs, or just Irish dissidents even, in theory, in theory, these people, especially the free willers, were supposed to have a little bit more rights and a little bit more legal protection than full-blown slaves, like African slaves, or um, in a few places, it wasn't as common, but in a few places in the British colonies, uh, there were enslaved Native Americans as well. Theoretically, these white servants had more rights, but in practice, it really was um, not, not a whole lot. 
So, by the way, uh, colonial laws that dealt with indentured servants and defined, you know, their lack of privileges and rights and whatever, those laws actually served as the basis for the later slave codes that were written in a lot of the colonies that legally defined the status of slaves. So those are just some of uh, my thoughts and some of my knowledge on this topic of, for lack of a better term, white slavery, or at least in practice, something amounting to that in the British colonies, uh, particularly on the part of Irish uh, indentured servants and, and convicts and POWs and what have you. Now, as to how to respond or deal with histories that are false, or at least have a fair amount of falsehood mixed in with truth and facts, again, even setting aside this one seems to me to be mostly true, but I've had other things I've come across or that listeners have sent me that turned out to have a lot more um, factual problems with them than this one. First, I would say the internet obviously is full of lots of partial and full-blown bullshit. No question about it. I think we all know this. Anyone who's not an idiot knows this. I don't think I have idiots in my audience. So I think we all know this. The great thing about the internet is that, is le- at least as of right now, almost anyone can say almost anything on it. And that's awesome. I'm all for that openness and freedom. I think gatekeepers suck and need to go away. But obviously it means that for us as consumers of internet content, whether it be something as small as a little meme or a post on Facebook or something as big as a as an online uh, show, you know, audio, video, whatever. By the way, on this topic, one thing that comes to mind is that, in a way, this um, lack of reliability on the part of internet history and internet facts, for that matter, illustrates some of the pluses of academia, some of the pluses of formal academia, because in academia, the process of peer review of scholarly articles generally does lead to solid basic fact-checking. And in addition, in academia, everything is about meticulous source citation and documentation of where your stuff came from. So for in history, the standard way of doing this is uh, Chicago-style footnotes and bibliography. Other academic disciplines have different methods of of doing this. Some use footnotes or endnotes. Some use uh, parenthetical citations. You know, there's things like MLA, APA, etc. But in academia, there's there's great emphasis on fact checking and on source citation. This is not always followed rigorously in so-called popular history. And of course, it's followed even less frequently to that rigorous extent in places online. So, you know, I don't often have much good to say about academia, but that's one that it's extremely hard to get. Um total bullshit across for very long. That's complete bullshit. Now, you can have a questionable interpretation of something or whatever, but there was a guy, and I'm blanking out on his name, some of you may recall, and I I don't want to take the time to look it up, but there was a guy, a very prominent historian a number of years ago, who published a book that was making the argument that colonial Americans had like very little in the way of guns. And he was doing it with a political purpose to try and attack American gun culture and gun rights in the present. And so he wrote this book that was arguing that very few Americans had guns in the colonial period and so on. And uh, it turned out that he was just, you know, fabricating sources and all this sort of thing. And even some of the academics who generally are left leaning and, and don't like guns and whatever are in favor of more gun control. Eventually, a bunch of them did come out and basically say, yeah, this guy, you know, committed fraud. And, and I don't remember what happened to him specifically, but it, it was not good for his career. Let's put it that way. 
Now, of course, there are minuses to academia. I mention them frequently. You know, a, a huge one is that the process of peer review in general is supposed to be about fact checking and that sort of thing. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't always stay limited to that. It often involves ideological policing and ideological conformity, and people don't get their stuff published, even if it is well documented and so on, uh, simply because it's deemed to be too far outside the existing paradigm or something. That does happen. There's a lot of groupthink. There's a lot of conformity on questions of overall paradigm, of how to interpret things, of ideology, or even sort of like meta questions such as, what historical topics should you look at in the first place, right? What historical methods should you use? What sources should be consulted and should not be consulted? These sorts of things are more subtle, but in a way they're more powerful and that is one of the downsides of academia, at least my familiarity with it in history. And I'm sure you can find it in most other disciplines as well. Now, one other thing I'll say is uh, always be wondering uh, questions of narrative purpose. Why is somebody writing or saying something that is maybe controversial or challenging what most people think or believe, right? That does matter. It doesn't mean the person's wrong. What it means is that you've got to separate the just sort of facts that they're trying to get across the basic information from their larger narrative purposes and look at those two things separately. So in the case of this article on white servitude or white slavery, you'd ask the question of, is this article simply intended to correct a blind spot in people's historical knowledge? And if that's the case, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That is from what I could tell from having read it, what the book white cargo basically does. Lots of other history books do this as well. Or is the purpose to try to, let's say, minimize? I can think of two, two sort of ulterior motives that could be behind this article. Even assuming all the, all the information in it is true, two ulterior motives that could potentially be behind it. And I'm not saying they are. I'm just saying could. One is potentially to minimize what African slaves faced, both as slaves and afterward, by sort of saying, look, these white people were abused and exploited too. So, you know, black slavery wasn't all that bad, right? Another thing, another ulterior motive I can think of is sort of Anglophobia slash Irish nationalism. In other words, this could be intended primarily to make the Irish feel more like they were victimized and make the British look more like demons and so on, right? Now, this article, it has a few places where the tone is kind of polemical, so it's possible that it may have some of those intentions, I'm not sure. But um, it was not quite as even-handed on, on those sorts of things as White Cargo was. So, yeah, somebody could be pointing out all these facts about the uh, horrible, horrible, bad um, experiences of white uh, servants and unfree, unfree laborers in the colonies, and um, they're right, and then they're like, and that's why black people really weren't that much of victims with the whole slavery thing. And that's where I'd hit the brakes and go, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, B does not flow from A there, buddy. Or somebody might be saying, saying these facts and then saying, and that's why all English people are demonic, evil monsters. And again, I'd tap the brakes and go, whoa, wait a minute, right? Certainly the, uh, the British state and the British Empire have a lot of terrible things about them, but... You know, it does not follow from that, that like the entire English race is composed of, of demons, right? So you got to be careful um, to separate someone's basic facts 
from the conclusions and the the, narr- the overall narrative purpose that they're trying to get across. Because just because you don't agree with their narrative purpose doesn't mean the facts are wrong and vice versa. Just because their facts are correct doesn't mean you have to agree with their narrative purpose. It might really be problematic for you. So that's that's one thing that I would say is to try and separate those two things. If you're really trying to analyze somebody's you know article or whatever, separate those two things, the facts and information from the narrative purpose. I'll give you just one example of, of a academic history book that I'm a big fan of, Gabriel Kolko's book, The Triumph of Conservatism, which is a great expose of what's really behind the progressive movement and how much big business themselves were trying to institute all the, all the progressive reforms. And that's all great. And I totally, you know, think it's dead on well-researched, but Gabriel Kolko was basically a, a socialist and his narrative purpose at the end of the day was probably something along the lines of encouraging people to um, abandon capitalism and abandon the free market entirely because of its, inconsistencies in practice in America where there's all this cronyism and so on, and to instead steer them more towards socialism. So I read Triumph of Conservatism, and I'm all with it in terms of its information, its facts, its research, but then I wouldn't share Gabriel Kolko's narrative purpose. I would do the opposite. I would say, well, that's why we really need a a truly freed market instead of a cronyist, corporatist one masquerading as a free market, that the solution isn't necessarily socialism. Perhaps the solution is to have a genuinely freed market. And the last thing I'll say as to bullshit floating around the internet, honestly, in most cases, I simply ignore it for my own sanity and for the sake of the scarceness of my own time. It is very tempting, especially if you spend a lot of time on social media, to really get lost in the weeds on a lot of these things. And um, I find, at least for my own sanity, I have to kind of minimize how much I get pulled into this. Now, obviously, uh, when, a, when a listener asks about a particular thing or whatever, I'm happy to try to look into it and figure out what I think. But on a, on a day-to-day basis, honestly, when I see some dumb bullshit on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, 99% of the time, I just ignore it. I just ignore it. So uh, thanks for the question, Ken. I hope that my response has been uh, at least interesting and thought-provoking uh, for you and everyone else listening. Okay, and the last email for this episode is one that doesn't really have a, a question, but is a, a story that a listener emailed to me that I love. So I asked him if I could uh, share the story with you on the air, and he said, sure. So here we go. This comes from a listener named Steve, and Steve says, I just listened to the episode on George Carlin. By the way, side note, that episode was really popular. I might have to do another one on a comedian uh, in the future. Somebody suggested, uh, I think it was Ray, suggested uh, Bill Hicks, and that's certainly a possibility down the line. Anyway, back to Steve's email. Um, Just listen to the episode on George Carlin. I agree that it's tough to pin him politically, and he probably would reject other people trying to label him. I think you're probably right, Steve. Uh, But individualist anarchist, Steve writes, probably fits as well as anything. Here's another bit of evidence to throw into the mix. In the mid to late 80s, I worked with Marshall Fritz, founder of the Advocates for Self-Government, a libertarian education organization. Specifically, I worked with him when he was developing the world's smallest political quiz, the 10-question quiz and chart made to fit on a card. By the way, that's an interesting little quiz. Many of you are probably familiar with it. Uh, If I remember, maybe I'll link to it in the show notes. Anyway, back to the email. Uh, Millions of these have been handed out since, and of course, the WSPQ now may be found all around the web. Marshall was an extrovert extraordinaire. 
it was probably not a joke that he owned the world's largest Rolodex, back when Rolodexes were actually a thing. His outreach for the libertarian cause included trying to get the quiz into the hands of celebrities. He found out that a friend knew Carlin, and through this he was able to get a quiz card to him. Carlin actually returned it, partially filled out. He had answered the first four or five questions, but then simply stopped and scrawled across the rest of the card in big letters, NO GOVERNMENT! Three exclamation points. That's the whole story as I know it. I thought you might enjoy it. Love it, Steve. Adds more uh, evidence to my political diagnoses that the late George Carlin, while you know not a 100% doctrinaire anything, is uh, probably closest to individualist anarchist um, out of any possible option. So thanks for the email, Steve. I really got a kick out of that story. I hope everybody else did as well. So that's it for uh, the emails for this episode. Thanks again to Jeff, to Derek, to Ken, and to Steve for the emails. I really appreciate it. Remember, you can email me, profcj at profcj.org. If you have any sorts of questions, comments, things to share with me, whatever, and uh, potentially I might ask you to use it on the show. And so far, I don't think I've ever asked anyone to use their email on a show or to share it with listeners who, who said no. But, you know, I always ask because I don't want to I don't want to assume anything. But, yeah, if you've got a, a cool question, comment, story, whatever, um, I might potentially say, yeah, can I use that in a show? In general, you know, I like a question or a comment that's got a little bit to it. I mean, Steve's was a was a short anecdote, but I thought it was a good one that connected to something I had done recently. If it's a question, I like a question that is something I can ramble on for a while, as you've got plenty of here. And I don't want a question that's a simple like yes or no without any elaboration or um, something that's, you know, a simple question of fact that you could Google in two seconds or find on Wikipedia, like what year did the Battle of Hastings happen? But something with with more meat to it, something that I can ramble on for a while and kind of throw different angles at what have you uh the emails in this episode were great examples of the kinds of emails that i like for a listener email show occasionally there'll be a question about something that i am just so ignorant of that um you know i I don't even i don't even want to get into it and sometimes it's a question that just you know i don't think is my thing or i don't think is quite right for this show um but you know please if you email me a question or comment uh, and you thought it'd be good for for the show, and I, I say no thanks. Uh, please don't take it personally. It's just my you know idiosyncratic editorial judgment uh, for whatever reason that I don't think your email is quite right for this sort of show. I admit it's somewhat subjective, but hey, it's my show after all. So if you can't be subjective to your own preferences in your own podcast, when the hell can you be? Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Make sure to check out my website, profcj.org, that's profcj.org, to find the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While there, you can also email subscribe to the website over on the right-hand side. You'll see a place to enter your email address, and if you sign up there, you'll simply get an email alert every time I post something new to my website. I promise you won't get any junk or spam or anything like that from me. For any correspondence, please feel free to email me at the email address profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with and follow me and the show on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can subscribe to the podcast in a variety of ways, including iTunes and Stitcher. If you like the show, there are multiple ways you can help it out. One simply is to spread the word about it any way you have available to you, whether social media, online discussion postings, word of mouth, or whatever, to people that you think might like the show. Also, please consider leaving a review or a rating in venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. 
There are also multiple ways you can help out the show financially. One is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash p-r-o-f-c-j. And sign up to support the show on a per-episode basis. If you do that... For any amount, I will thank you by name in the next episode that I record. And if you've signed up for at least a dollar per episode, you'll have access to special monthly bonus episodes via Patreon that are available no place else. You can also visit profcj.org slash donate to donate to the show via PayPal or Bitcoin. And you can also help the show out financially by doing your Amazon shopping after first going through any of the affiliate links found on my website. And if you do that, I will get a small commission from Amazon at no cost to you. So thanks again for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.